This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Due to technical difficulties, the first few minutes of this sermon were not recorded. Spurgeon said, you can judge a man or a woman by what he groans after. What he or she looks forward to, we might say. It's natural for people who have journeyed with the Lord for some time, who have walked in a discipling relationship with the Lord and with others, to contemplate heaven, to long for the day when their aching and fragile bodies will be made new. But Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, drilled down a bit more into our yearning for heaven when he asked this, his congregation this question. He said, do you ever look forward to being in heaven? The person who looks forward to death simply wants to get out of life because of his troubles. The Christian has a positive desire for heaven. And therefore I ask, do you look forward to it? What is it we are desiring? Is it the rest of heaven? Is it to be free from troubles and tribulations? Is it the joy of heaven? The peace of heaven? All those things are to be found there, he says. Thank God. But that is not the thing to look forward to in heaven. It is the face of God. And then he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Do we long for that? One way to summarize our mission and vision at UPBC, we've been preaching and teaching through recently, is that we would be centered on God in all things. God-centered. Our message is that God is, God speaks, God saves, and God sins. He's the subject of each of those short statements. He's the means and the goal. He's the prize of life. If you think about all the elements of salvation, they all lead to this end, to God. We're forgiven that we might have God. We're justified by faith that we might be reconciled to God. We have everlasting life with and to enjoy God forever. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He is the ultimate treasure. We were made for him. So what jumps into the forefront of your mind when I ask you what you're looking forward to? Is it grandkids, retirement, an empty nest, kids being out of diapers, vacation, being married one day, Another Astros World Series. Let's go. ALCS. Is it a new job? A promotion? School being over? None of these things are bad. But there is a question behind the question, isn't there? What happens after you get that thing that you're looking forward to? What then? What will be the next thing that we set our sights on? And then what? And then what? And then what? We've come near the end of the book of Genesis, and that means we're coming to the end of the life of Jacob. And he has seen all the things in his lifetime, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And near the end of his life, Jacob is experiencing what I think we all will hope to experience, reconciliation, rest, and some level of comfort. He's surrounded by family. He's likely living in luxury, even in the midst of a famine, with Joseph, who is second in command of all of Egypt. But there is a deeper desire, a deeper hunger in Jacob's heart that's revealed at the end of his life. 
He's yearning for something better than the lavish pleasures of Egypt. He, he longs for his true homeland. He longs for God. So whether this morning we are hurting or content, struggling or just sailing through life, we have before us a helpful reminder to set our hope on the only thing in life that is sure. Knowing, loving, worshiping, trusting God. As we look at our passage this morning, we're going to see two major sections. Um, The first section in verses 13 to 26 shows us how Joseph saves all of Egypt from starvation in the midst of a severe famine. And I'll just tell you up front, technically he does it by enslaving them. So let's get ready for that. God's promise to Abraham, his promises are at least partially fulfilled in Joseph's rule and reign, here in a surprising, unexpected way. So that first section we'll just call provision. Okay, verses uh, 13 to 26, we kind of went into chapter 47 last week up to verse 12, and we'll pick it up in verse 13. In the last few verses of the chapter, that's where we'll see Jacob's longing for God's land, God's promise, and, and Joseph's promise to take him there. So that's the title of the last few verses, promise. So provision, promise. May the Lord bless the preaching and hearing of his word. Let's think first about the provision that we see here in this first section. And there are two main points here that I think Moses wants us to see. Number one, the famine in the land is incredibly severe. And number two, Joseph, the descendant of Abraham, the seed of promise, saves the Egyptians. He saves the nations. Last week we saw Jacob travel down to Egypt. First he went through Beersheba where God came to him in night visions assuring him that it was okay for him to leave the promised land and journey down to Egypt and he said he would bring him up again. And I think there Jacob sees that as God's promise not only that he'll bring him back to Canaan but that he will raise him up from the dead. Because he understands that he's going to die in Egypt. God tells him, Joseph is going to close your eyes. And so Jacob and Joseph are reunited in chapter 46. And then Joseph guides him and his brothers through this interaction with Pharaoh that landed them in the best of the land of Egypt in Goshen, where they're able to shepherd their flocks, be near Joseph. And at the beginning of chapter 47, Jacob was brought before Pharaoh and he blessed him which reminds us of the promises of Genesis 12. I will bless those who bless you, curse those that curse you. And and through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So the nations are literally blessed by Jacob. And God, in turn, blesses Israel, as we'll see in our passage through the seed of promise. So let's pick it up there in verse 13 of chapter 47. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. I'll just say it's not easy for us to get our minds around a sentence like this, uh, but it is all-encompassing. No food, so that the people are starving, and the land itself is languishing. So no food means no food. There's nothing to eat, nothing growing, likely no rain for the crops, and people are beginning to starve, and there are no grocery stores, no restaurants. True hunger is probably likely not known to many of us in this room to this point, and thirst. 
But think about the desperation you would feel. As an example, as, as a father, watching your wife and children grow, grow weak and thin and ill because there is nothing to eat. It's just a matter of time before they die. That's where we are in verse 13. Verse 14. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. Uh, So remember, this famine does not come out of the blue. The Bible is God-centered. And the God of the Bible works all things together for his purposes and for the good of his people, even famines. Isaiah 45 Verse 7 says of God saying this through to Isaiah, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. That's the God of the Bible. And God gave Pharaoh dreams about a coming famine. And then he gave Joseph the ability to interpret those dreams and recommend a plan to store up grain in the years of plenty so that there would be enough grain to sustain the people during the famine. Things have worked out exactly the way that God said that they would. People from all over the world have come to Egypt to purchase grain. Joseph has gathered up all the money in Egypt and in Canaan so that there is no more. Now imagine that. The currency is gone, and the currency here in view is probably silver, And so once it's gone, it's gone. There's no more printing silver. You can't just go print more money. There's going to be some economics in this sermon. No one's doing that. So people are coming to Joseph in complete desperation. Look at there in verse 15. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. Now, we understand this request. They are completely desperate. They're hungry. Their lives are at stake. But Joseph does not just give them food. He responds to their need, but not their demand. Look at his response in verse 16. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock. If your money is gone, if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. Now, before we go further in this text, I just want to say that when we come to places like this in the Bible, we need to guard against um, quick emotional reactions and try to actually kind of put our thinking cap on and understand what's here, what's really happening. Uh, Joseph could have just given away food. He could have established some sort of uh, ancient welfare program here. But instead, notice what he does. He sets up an exchange of one thing of value for another thing of value. So and if you read the commentators on this, Joseph gets... Uh, torn apart. Uh, is it a power grab? Is he trying to expand the, the government? I mean, what, what, what is this? But I think Joseph, because he understands God and he understands the stories, he doesn't have the written scriptures, but he understands the stories. He understands the value and the purpose of human beings and of work. God made man in his own image. Joseph would know that. And he put man in the garden to work 
and to keep it. Work is not a product of the fall. It's good. It provides uh, purpose and dignity and a sense of accomplishment and responsibility and, and, and maturity. Parents, I know many of you are trying to diligently teach this to your, your children, and it's kind of interesting for me to sit back and, and look at some of the generational differences and the way that sometimes that works itself out, and some families will give an, give an allowance and say, oh, I want, you to, I want to teach the stewardship of how to give and pay some, some bills, and, and some families are saying, you're just lucky to live in my house, and you're going to do everything I tell you to do, and that's your allowance, so you get to live um, some of us maybe grew up in those situations and get, get, get paid for mowing the yard. And some say, no, your payment is you get a bed to sleep in and you just be thankful. I mean, there's a lot of ways that we're teaching this, but, but the, the goal is that we're, we're trying to encourage the value of work, right? Um, and, and men and women have a part in this, both of us do. But in the garden, I think we especially see Adam given this command to provide and to protect and so I just, I just want to acknowledge, this is, this is for all of us. Not everyone is in the situation where they're able to work or there's different circumstances, but, but particularly the young men in the room, I just want to point your attention to that and let you understand that that kind of work, that kind of provision and protection is very good. It is what we are called to do. We are called to cultivate the mindset that says, I'm going to work hard I'm going to earn a living to try to provide for those around me and I am going to put laziness to death in my life. I'm going to work. I'm not going to expect someone else to do it for me. I'm not going to expect a handout. And later Paul is going to make this really clear in 2 Thessalonians. And this this is helpful for us as we seek to, to minister to those around us. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Let him not eat. So instead of just giving food, he sets up an exchange. They give something of value, their livestock, and then they receive something of value, grain. And so so the the currency that represents something of value is gone. Now they go to these material possessions and exchange. And um, some commentators will even say that the livestock are being mortgaged in a way that they're able to keep them. And, but, but, but uh, you know, Pharaoh owns them, which maybe would make sense. They're able to still work the, the ground. But this, this, this program, this idea works. And so they get enough food to last them for a year. But then their food runs out again. So let's pick it up again in chapter 47, verse 18. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we, will, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate." So it, not- it seems like they've learned from their first interaction with Joseph not just to ask for food, but, but to, to offer an exchange. All they have is their land and themselves. And they suggest that, that Joseph, and I think it's significant that they suggest this, they suggest Joseph purchased them and their land in exchange for grain and seed. Grain to eat and seed then to to, to sow for future crops. And again, we need to, to look closely 
patiently at this and, and not have a, a knee-jerk reaction um, to our modern ears. Any kind of, this, this picture, this looks like slavery and really that word for servant is the kind of a softened word there for, for slave. And that in, in our mind, and I'll, and I'll confess even in my mind, it often equates to American, British slavery. That's what comes to my mind. But, but friends, that is clearly without question condemned in the Bible. The Bible refers to, to that as man-stealing, taking someone by force and consigning them to a life of abuse and servitude, treating them as mere property, less than a human, an image bearer of God. We don't see slavery in Genesis 1. We don't see it in the end in, in Revelation 21 and 22. What we do see in the scriptures is an acknowledgement that we live in a sin-soaked, broken world where slavery in various forms historically exists. And often you'll see the Bible placing parameters around the practice to seek to mitigate it. In, in certain cases, uh, for example, in wars, people are conquered, and then, and then the, those that are conquered are brought into servitude. Or, or even in, in Israel, when someone goes into, into debt, we can look in the book of Leviticus, and, and they, they, someone would sell themselves into servitude as a way to pay off their, their debt, and, and in Leviticus, we see in other places in the Old Testament where, where that, is, that is allowed, and then after every 50 years, those slaves are released at the year of, of Jubilee. Often, this form of slavery was even preferred by some who were, who were destitute, and they, they might be able to lead kind of a peaceful and quiet life that you see Joseph doing in Potiphar's house, where he's in the house, and he's doing all these things. So, so what's happening here in Genesis 47 is not the kind of slavery that comes to our mind when we hear that word. I think Moses is making a connection for us back to Joseph's situation in chapter 39. I think we have a, a picture of the chiasm, and uh, I, I like to just put this up here as a reminder um, for us that, that the way that Moses is shaping the, 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 the chapter, uh, chapters 37 um, to, to 50, um, is he's, he's shaping it in this chiastic form. And if you can zone in somehow with your, with your mind, or just trust me, at the letter D, the letter D in the, in the flow says, Joseph is enslaved in Egypt, that's chapter 39. And then the D prime, the matching part of that, is Joseph's enslavement of the Egyptians in chapter 47. So it mirrors what happened earlier when Joseph was, was taken into slavery, sold by his brothers, taken into Potiphar's house, and now the tables are turned in a way, I think, to just exalt uh, the seed of the woman and show that, that God is at work and he's going to be doing a saving work that's different from what's happened in chapter 39, but it's, but it's mirrored there pretty clearly. And so, so that's, what's, that's what we're seeing happening, this idea that they bring to him uh, by us, by our lands, so that we can eat. Okay, so pick it up in verse 20. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land." So Joseph here acquires all the land of Egypt except for the land of the priests. They have this, 
this provided for allowance by Pharaoh of food and land and and they're, they're taken care of. And so Joseph then provides grain and seed for the people that they can eat and plant. I don't know where I stopped reading. Let me go back in verse 23. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves, and for your households, and as food for your little ones. Okay, so, so there's the, the, the whole picture. Okay, he's got the, the land, he's got the food, he's purchased the people, and he's providing now grain and seed for them to eat and to plant. And when harvest comes, there's going to be a, a 20% tax that comes on the crops. That's what a fifth is. I had to kind of work that out in my own mind, like I'm not used to, okay. That's what a fifth is, 20% tax on the crops. And that means, again, math in my head, they get to keep 80% for themselves, 80% of the produce is there. And, and by ancient Near Eastern standards, that's really, really good. And some of you might say that's really good by today's standards and the taxes we receive. Um, so think about the, what we pay. So again, they stay on their land. They keep 80% of their crops that they have in, in order to exchange, in exchange for food that they're gonna work, their bodies, they're gonna, they're gonna give of themselves to work and of their land. So they're essentially kind of like royal tenant farmers or serfs, you might say. But what you don't see here are the typical evils that come along with slavery that we would expect, which really are just kind of assault all the Ten Commandments. Uh, theft, man-stealing, murder, very common, uh, adultery, sexual abuse, bearing false witness, physical abuse, all those things uh, we don't see. Actually, we do see many of them in Exodus 1 and 2 when the tables are turned and there's a new Pharaoh who doesn't know Joseph and he enslaves Israel and we see multiple things happening there. And look again at verse 21, at that phrase, he made servants or slaves of them. And if you're looking at an ESV, you'll see that there's a footnote there that, that lists kind of the way that some other translations render that, that verse. And you'll see that the Hebrew, there, so there's multiple translations, Samaritan, Septuagint, Vulgate, and then Hebrew, he removed them to the cities. And the difference is really one letter in a Hebrew word, and, and from what I can tell, it should be rendered this way. He removed them to the cities, which if you remember, that's where all the grain was stored. And another way to translate that phrase is that he passed over them that the famine passed over them because of Joseph's actions. And that ought to, to raise our awareness and thinking as in a connection with the Exodus. Um, another connection with the Exodus is just an allusion here to Joseph as a deliverer and as a savior. Notice the people's response to what, what's happening here. And this helps us understand, I think, what's really going on. Verse 25, and they said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have a fifth of the land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. So over and over, we see that it was ultimately God that sent Joseph to Egypt. 
He he was sold into slavery himself, wrongly accused, abandoned in order to preserve life. And now we see those promises fulfilled. So in a sense, the promises of Abraham are coming to pass here in Joseph, at least partially. In him, the nations are blessed. They are saved. Those that bless him are blessed. His name is great. And because of him, Israel is going to be a great nation in Egypt. Joseph saves Egypt. Friends, that does point us to the greater Joseph, Jesus Christ, who saves us from our sins. He is the ultimate fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. And we must come to him like the people of Egypt come to Joseph, understanding our desperate need. We have nothing left. Without him, we will die in our sins. And the good news is that Jesus Christ came to die in our place to pay the debt that we could not pay on our own. We have no currency to give, no good work, no trying our best. We are spiritually bankrupt. He provides for us. He gives of himself. His righteousness, his obedience, his death pays for it all. And then our response is, again, similar to the Egyptians. We, we worship. We're thankful And we say, we'll give you all of our lives. You're our master. We will follow and serve and obey from a heart of gladness. We were slaves to sin. Now we've been made slaves to righteousness. The wrath of God that we deserve was passed over because Jesus has taken it for us. So friend, trust Jesus. Turn from your sin. Believe he died for your sin, rose from the grave and you will be saved. Think about those testimonies that we heard from the baptisms. Are you following Jesus? Are you putting your trust in him? He is a glorious king. We can trust him. So that's the the first section. We see the seed of Abraham saving the nations, saving the people of Egypt. Now, all the while we're wondering what about Jacob? What about his family? And that's what we see in this last, few, this last section here. Number two, promise. So we're back to our outline, number two, promise. And there's a bit of a summary statement in verse 27 that we see. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob in the Years of his life were 147. So we recognize that fruitful and multiply language. It comes from given to Adam and Eve as a command in Genesis 1, 28. Later it's given to Noah after the flood in Genesis 9, kind of a new creation, be fruitful and multiply. Then it's, then it's given as a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15. And then even to Jacob when he's renamed Israel in chapter 35, you will be fruitful and multiply. And here in Genesis 47, that promise is being fulfilled. The people were fruitful and they multiplied greatly. Which points to another fulfillment of the promise to the seed of the woman through Joseph. And of course, they're going to grow into such a large nation that eventually it's going to threaten Egypt. It's going to lead to their enslavement and exodus through the deliverer Moses. We also get these bookmarks on Jacob's life in verse 28. He lived in Egypt for 17 years. 
at the end of his life, and he was 147 years old. And I just say bookmarks because if you remember in chapter 37, he was 17 years old when he was sold into slavery. And so he lived under his father's roof for 17 years. And then this whole thing happened, being sold into slavery and gone to Egypt. And now his father is living under his roof for the final 17 years of his life. And 17 years is a long time. And we could imagine during this time of famine that Jacob is experiencing a life possibly of luxury. Even in, in famine, Joseph is in charge. Joseph has all the money, all the food, all the livestock. Everything was his. And as his father, Jacob would have been revered. He would have had all he ever wanted. But the last few verses just show us where Jacob's heart really is. So let's look there, verse 29. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight... Put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. So Jacob is essentially saying, Egypt is great and all. And I'm thankful to be here with you, Joseph, but this is not my home. I want to go home. I'm looking forward to be buried in that tomb that Abraham purchased by faith. I'm looking forward to be buried with him and, and, and Isaac. And I'm looking forward to the promises being fulfilled. That is more significant than the riches of Egypt. And this, can you imagine, would be a timely word for the Israelites who are actually reading this while they're wandering in the wilderness, having been delivered from Egypt and often wanting to go back, often complaining that I wish, Numbers eleven four. oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up. And there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. That resonates with us, doesn't it? Looking around and nothing but complaints. Wanting to go back maybe to our life before the Lord. Jacob is seeking a better country. A heavenly one, as the author of Hebrews says. I think we could say like Moses, who he's like being like Moses who chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the, the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater than wealth of all the wealth and treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward, Hebrews eleven twenty five and 26. When he, he's looking to the promises of God, that's that hand under my thigh, it's that, 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 that promise and reminder of God to bless the seed of the woman to save the world. And beloved, this is something for us to be reminded of, that we are, as Peter calls us and, and, and labels us, elect exiles, living in a world that is not our home. That ought to lead us to have open hands to the things of this world and hearts full of Christ with our eyes set upon him. And I love this little part at the end, this little promise that's fulfilled this last verse, Israel bowed himself 
upon his bed, or, or some translations say on his staff. And I just remember Joseph's dream, and I don't know about you, but I've been kind of waiting for this moment where the, the sun and the moon would bow down along with the seven stars. The brothers are the 11 stars, and they've bowed down multiple times. We know that, that Rachel has, has already died, but, but here his father, Jacob, the son, bows down. God is keeping his word. We can trust him. Jacob was trusting him. He was trusting him and looking forward to being with him. And I think that looking forward is more than just having his bones in a tomb, but knowing that one day God would bring those bones to life. Remember Ezekiel's prophecy, chapter 37. The Spirit of the Lord brought him to a valley full of dry bones and asked him, can these bones live? And then he called Ezekiel to preach to the bones calling them to come alive. The word of God making them alive. And he did. And as he preached, he heard a loud rattling sound. And before his eyes, the bones came together and sinews appeared on them and flesh came upon them and skin covered them and breath came into them. And then they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And God said this to Ezekiel in chapter 37, verse 11. Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. We serve a God who raises the dead, who brings dry bones to life. And Jesus is coming again to do just that. And is there anything better to look forward to that we could be living for? Seeing him face to face. If that is our longing, it changes how we live today and tomorrow. Peter says this in 1 Peter 1, 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what Jacob is doing. He's living for the realization of God's promises. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And there's nothing better to look forward to. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and we pray that you would do much more, that you would go beyond the scope of this sermon and take your word and apply it. Lord, help us to understand it. Help us to be good thinkers. Help us not to be part of the, the ways of the world that quickly, emotionally discount things. Help us to think biblically. Help us to be clear where the Bible is clear. And Lord, we pray that our hearts would be full of hope in Christ and that that hope would transform us and give us life every day.
as we battle with discouragement, as we battle with our own sin, may we look to Christ. May we look to his glorious appearing. And may we be found faithful. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.